welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Before we begin, I just want to thank all the patrons who contribute to the channel. You guys are a big help, and your support helps me to keep this show going. Thanks also to anyone who shared an episode. We saw a big spike in listenership last month, and every share makes a difference. Along the same lines, if you feel inspired to share this episode with your friends, I certainly won't complain. I'm going on vacation this month to visit my parents over the holidays, and I'm also producing two Patreon episodes to get us all caught up for subscribers. The plan for now is to get back at the main series in the first week of January. And this is when we'll dive into the American Revolution. But for the time being, I wanted to focus on something I did a bonus episode about back in February. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. If current events bore you, go ahead and skip this episode and come back for the next one. For everyone else, I want to talk about what we've learned over the past several months. But more importantly, since we don't yet know the outcome of the war... I also want to talk about some of the what-ifs of the situation. What are the possible outcomes, and how might things shake out? And I'll admit that I'm taking some risk here, because I don't have a crystal ball. We just got done talking about the Seven Years' War, and nobody would have predicted the death of Elizabeth Petrovna, which turned the war in the Prussians' favor. I'm just a guy on the internet, and... History is more than capable of making me look like an idiot. And I should note, before I start, that I don't trust either side's numbers when it comes to military equipment or losses. The Russians claim to have destroyed something like 200% of the HIMARS systems that the U.S. sent to Ukraine, so you can guess how much stock I put in their claims— but the Ukrainians have also been known to exaggerate a little. This is war, and in wartime you tell whatever lies you have to tell to give your side an edge. Regardless if I am citing numbers on military losses, they're coming from Oryx, which is a crowdsourced intelligence service. Yes, that does mean people on the internet, but their numbers are based on photographic evidence. So if I say the Ukrainians have destroyed X number of Russian tracked vehicles, that means that online volunteers have identified X number of unique destroyed vehicles based on available photographs. So their numbers will often be an undercount, but they're not nearly as subject to propaganda as official government channels. So... Let's talk about what has happened over the last 10 months. At this point, this point being December of 2022, the Russian invasion is now known for its grinding assaults and slow pace, but that was not the original Russian plan. Instead, what seems to have been the original plan was a quick decapitation strike. A charge into the capital city of Kiev to 
capture Zelensky or kill him or just make him run away and overthrow the government. The strategy that the Russians seem to have been trying to use is one that was actually pioneered by the Americans in Baghdad in 2003. This is a military strategy called a thunder run. The idea here is to take a city over without grinding street-to-street combat. In 2003, the U.S. commanders in Iraq were very concerned during the initial invasion that there would be incredibly high U.S. casualty rates and In a democracy, that would immediately destroy public support for the war, and it would be a failure. So instead, U.S. commanders came up with the idea of inserting a major, strong force directly into the enemy capital, and by doing that, collapsing enemy morale. So in 2003, after crossing the Iraqi border, two U.S. Corps made a drive towards Baghdad. Uh, These Army Corps led with armored units, uh, followed by infantry, and they bypassed any cities and defensive points in the country. They just made a beeline for the capital. And within days of the invasion, they set up camp around Baghdad and seize Baghdad International Airport south of the city on April 4th. And this allowed them to then fly in, resupply directly to the army instead of having to drive fuel and other supplies in trucks all the way from Kuwait. And they seize the international airport on April 4th, And then on April 6th, two days later, the 3rd Infantry Division's 3rd Brigade moves northwest of the city. And they stage a distraction attack that draws the attention of Saddam Hussein's most elite units. Uh, His best Republican Guard units move off there to the northwest of the city to engage this American force. And then the next day, on April 7th, the 2nd Brigade charges into the government district in the heart of the city with Abrams tanks. And I'll just read this quick excerpt from Army University Press, quote, The division used long-range rockets to target high-payoff targets, such as Iraqi fire support and air defense artillery, and massed fires from a self-propelled howitzer battalion to suppress each key intersection along 2nd Brigade's route 10 minutes ahead of the moving armored column. The division artillery denied the Republican Guard's use of these key terrain features as defensive roadblocks and forced Iraqi infantry to harass the column with ineffective small-unit ambushes from bunkers and buildings near the road. The Iraqis launched uncoordinated counterattacks with light weapons, but without a well-prepared combined arms defense supported by integrated obstacles and artillery, the Iraqis had no hope of stopping the mechanized formation. 2nd Brigade penetrated 20 kilometers in two hours to seize the regime district at the heart of Baghdad and then fought all day and night to defend its foothold against Iraqi counterattacks. 
Blount had to commit his reserve battalion to reinforce Perkins and resupply the 2nd Brigade so that it could retain the regime district until morning. At dawn, international media reported that the U.S. Army had defeated the Iraqi Republican Guard inside its own capital, and Hussein's regime began to collapse. End quote. Well, in the opening days of the Ukraine invasion, Vladimir Putin tries something similar. If you were paying attention at all at that time, you probably remember that armored column coming in from the north to attack Kiev that was 40 kilometers long. Well, that is part of the Thunder Run, but that is really mostly the reinforcement element. And a lot of people will focus when they look at this failure on Russian corruption. They'll say, ah, the armored column ran out of fuel because General so-and-so was selling oil on the black market and the fuel reserves were actually half empty all along. And there was certainly a lot of that, but keep in mind that a key element of the U.S. Thunder Run in Baghdad was taking the airport. Right, That was key for resupplying this army deep in Iraqi territory. And the Russians don't have that in Ukraine. But the plan actually calls for it. In the very beginning of the war, the Antonov Airport in Hostomel, Ukraine, comes under attack by Russian airborne units. These guys are from the uh, VDV, which is short for Vozdushno Desantnye Voiskorosi, or Russian Airborne Forces. These are the best of the best of the Russian military. They have been the focus of heavy investment during Putin's military reform and rearmament period, and they have gotten the best equipment, the best training, and so on. So the Russians send their elite troops on February 24th, the morning war is declared, and they land somewhere between 20 and 34 helicopters at Antonov Airport, just north of Kiev. Now, this initial landing is a success. They overwhelm the garrison there, and they're preparing to have more guys flown in, but then local armed civilians, along with some Ukrainian National Guard units, attack the VDV units, and Ukrainian artillery also targets the airport, so the airborne forces are forced to retreat from the airport into some nearby woods. Now, more Russian troops do fly in the next day on February 25th. Uh, these are VDV troops, and they're supported by some early elements of mechanized ground troops that have driven in from the north. And these guys all together are enough to take over the airport. But they spent too long doing it. And with all the fighting back and forth, particularly the Ukrainian shelling, the runways have been destroyed, and 
So have most of the facilities, and now it's not really a functioning airport anymore. They can't use it to fly in more supplies. And for reference, the previous episode I did on Ukraine was released the very next day, February 26th, as all of this was still very foggy at the time. The morning of the same day, February 26th, Russia attacks the Vesilkiv airport, which is south of Kiev. There's a lot of myth and inaccurate information going around about this attack, though uh, reports from the Ukrainians say that the Russians drop VDV paratroopers and that two large transport planes, uh, IL-76 planes, are shot down by Ukrainian air defenses, preventing the Russians from landing more troops. But I have not been able to find any evidence of actual paratroopers, and Oryx has no record of these downed planes, which you would expect there would be photographic evidence, since these are large transport planes supposedly shot down in an urban area. What most likely seems to have happened on February 26th was the activation of sleeper cells of pro-Russian militia in the area. Basically, they have moved some people into place near the airport, and this is their day to go and try and take it over for the Russians, but regardless, this attack fails, and as a result, the Russians are not able to establish any sort of forward supply base right outside of Kiev, and this spoils their entire thunder run attack plan of charging directly for the heart of the enemy capital. Now, last episode, well not last episode, the the last time we talked about Ukraine, I made some predictions and I said that Putin would declare victory regardless of the outcome. No matter where the war leads, he's just going to move the goalposts so that he doesn't lose face at home. He can tell the Russian people that he won the war. Well, sure enough, on March 29th, Russia announces a reduction in activity around Kiev. Okay, so we've skipped a month forward here. So there's been a month-long siege of Kiev, but it has been unsuccessful. And on March 30th, Russia announces a planned redeployment to Eastern Ukraine. Now, those words I used, reduction in activity and planned redeployment, those are the words used by the Russians. And this is often panned as propaganda. People will say the Ukrainians drove them back all the way to the northern border. Well, that's not quite the case. The Ukrainians put up a marvelous defense of their capital city, but what seems to have happened is that the Russians have seen that the Ukrainian morale is much higher than they expected, that the Zelensky government is popular, at least far more popular than the idea of having the Russians be in control. And remember, the entire point of a thunder run is to win a morale victory. The U.S. charging into the government district in Baghdad 
it had some impact on the Iraqis' ability to operate their defenses, but more importantly, it was like sending out a giant beacon that says, we're here, we are operating with impunity in the heart of your capital city. Imagine if you're an American seeing Russian tanks on the lawn of the White House. Even if those were the only Russian tanks in America, it would have an immediate morale effect. Well, if a successful thunder run into Kiev isn't going to collapse the Ukrainian government, if it's not going to make the people surrender, then what is the purpose of engaging in a long, hard-fought siege there? Zelensky can just move his government further east to Lviv, and if the Russians take Kiev, well, holding it is not practical. It's in the western half of the country. It's far from Russia. If Russia's going to even think about holding Kiev, well, they have to take a bunch of land in the east first anyway. So this is what they do. I also made a really boneheaded prediction in retrospect the last time we talked about this. I predicted that the Russians would either take the port city of Odessa with amphibious landings or at least make an attempt. But there's actually only been one amphibious landing by the Russians so far in this war, and that is far to the east in the Sea of Azov on February 24th, the first day of the invasion. And that day, the Russians land thousands of marines to try and move inland towards the Ukrainian city of Maripol, but otherwise the Russian navy has pretty much been a non-factor in this war. Now, Russia has never been known as a great naval power. The Russian military and Soviet military before that and the Russian imperial military before that have always been focused first and foremost on the army. This makes sense when you just look at a map and see how ridiculously long Russia's borders are. Until this war, people thought that Russia at least had a second-rate navy, right? I mean, the Admiral Kuznetsov, their one aircraft carrier, is kind of a meme at this point, but they do have some pretty capable missile cruisers and submarines and other ships that can put up a fight. But Russia seems to have planned very, very poorly, and been, dare I say, overconfident in the naval realm. See, prior to the war, they do not mass a large number of ships in the Black Sea. And this is a problem. See, there is an international treaty called the Montreux Convention, and this convention says that the Turkish government will not allow uh, 
military warships to pass through the Bosporus, the straits between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. Uh, I should say they will not allow military ships to pass through that strait if those ships belong to a nation at war, unless Turkey is also involved in the war and that nation is allied with Turkey, but that is not the case here. So Russia is now unable to move more ships into the Black Sea. Well, this means that when their navy underperforms, they can't compensate with numbers. And boy, does their navy underperform. On April 14th, Ukraine sinks the Moskva, the guided missile cruiser that is the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Now, much has been made of the use of anti-ship missiles, not just against the Moskva, but people online just won't shut up about them in general. If you read a lot of articles, you would think that navies are all but obsolete because on the first day of a major war, all the ships will just get blown out of the water by missiles. But missiles are a known threat. Ships have anti-missile systems, and the Moskva has been recently upgraded. So how are the Ukrainians able to sink it so easily? Now, what I'm about to describe here is speculative. We know that a drone or drones were somehow involved in the sinking of the Moskva. The nitty-gritty of the military tactics involved are secret by design. Who knows, maybe the Ukrainians want to try the same thing again and they don't want to spread the news everywhere of what they did the first time. But here is the best explanation I have found for how they might have sunk the Moskva despite its anti-missile systems. The Ukrainians fly a drone out to sea to near the Moskva. Now, this drone looks like a reconnaissance drone, and the Russians track it, but they don't fire on it. Anti-air missiles are expensive compared to drones. You can't just go shooting at every drone you see, and this will become important later, by the way. We'll come back to that point. So... The Russians track the drone, and the drone circles around the ship out to the seaward side, and the Russian radar follows it. And as the Russian fire control radar is focused on this drone, just in case it tries anything, a missile is en route from land, and it's not using any active systems, not sending out any radar that might alert the Moskva that it's coming. It's just homing in on this drone. And it doesn't activate its internal guidance systems until the last second. And at that point, it's too late for the Russians to get a firing solution on the missile. And it hits their Black Sea flagship and apparently hits a magazine or some other highly sensitive area because it seems to do a lot of damage, and the ship sinks. 
Now, regardless of whether this account is exactly how it was done or not, well, we'll have to wait for after the war when these secret things start coming out, and maybe we won't know for decades. But regardless, it's a big embarrassment for the Russians. To put the sinking of the Moskva in perspective, it's the biggest Russian naval loss since World War II, and it's their first flagship lost since the Battle of Tsushima in 1905. It's also a strategic loss because it has more powerful radar and anti-air defenses than the other smaller ships in the Russian Black Sea Fleet, and without it providing sort of a protective envelope, the Russians have to pull their entire navy further back from the coast, where they are basically out of missile range from shooting at the Ukrainians, so their navy has more or less been neutralized. Ironically, the Ukrainians are now using American riverine craft to attack some Russian positions. Last month, they launched an assault across the Dniprovska Gulf. This is a gulf at the opening of the Dnipro River where it meets the Black Sea. And uh, the Ukrainians, for the most part in this area, control the west bank of the river and the Russians control the east bank, but Further south, uh, to the east, there's a little peninsula that juts way out across to the west. And that area between the peninsula and the mainland is the Dniprovska Gulf. And the Ukrainians have used rivercraft to send troops across there to the Ukrainian or Russian-held land on that stretch of land, that peninsula called the Kinburn Spit. Now, they don't seem to have occupied the area. would probably be silly to do so because it's just a narrow stretch of land. It would be hard to break out of there into Russian-held areas. And how would you supply those troops? But while the Ukrainians were there on the Kinburn split, they were able to destroy some missile batteries, which the Russians had been using to shell Ukrainian units uh, deep in the rear. Again, could the Ukrainians open a second front here? Probably not, but it's something to think about. And Ukrainians have even been using drone boats to attack Russian ships at port. In October, they attacked some ships at anchor in the port at Novorossik, which is far to the east, and three ships were damaged. So, so much for my predictions on the naval war. Anyway, back to the land war in eastern Ukraine. By April 7th, there were basically no Russian troops in the north and west. They have all been transferred or are transferring. And in the south, even, they have seemed to stop their advance, right? Russians have been invading not just towards Kiev in the north, but their primary invasion has been in the east from those territories they already held, and then also in the south uh, to connect uh, the land between Crimea, which the Russians already held, 
and the lands they held in eastern Ukraine, which would give them a direct route to uh, Russia without having to rely on the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia, which is their only direct link uh, prior to the war. These Russian troops in southern Ukraine shell the city of Mykolaiv, which is west of Kherson, but then they withdraw to Kherson, and that's as far as they have ever gotten in the south. Uh, They seem to have completely given up any idea of conquering the Ukrainian coast and driving for Odessa or even Transnistria if they got as far as that. So, again, Putin definitely moving the goalposts. And the entire focus at this point in April is around uh, two major Ukrainian cities, one being Kharkiv in the northeast and the other being Mariupol in the southeast. Now, Mariupol at this point is completely cut off from the rest of Ukraine and it is under siege. And because it's part of that vital land bridge between Russia and Crimea, Russia pours all of their spare resources into this siege. And by April 12th, the Ukrainian army only holds the Azovstal steel plant. This is a massive factory. It's basically a fortress made out of concrete. There are many, many underground layers and facilities. You may as well have a purpose-built bunker. This area is defended by the Azov Regiment, which is a mostly Russian-speaking National Guard unit that originated as a far-right militia because Ukraine is complicated. And uh, during this time, the Ukrainian focus is entirely on holding ground. And Mariupol is amazing for that because these guys in the steel plant tie down 14,000 Russian troops. Now, these are very fuzzy numbers. Again, we are dealing with the fog of war here, so take any numbers with a grain of salt. But around 14,000 Russians are tied down by these couple of thousand Azov regiment guys. And they hold out for another month and do not surrender until May 18th. Now, the end of the siege of Mariupol frees up 10 Russian battalion tactical groups, or BTGs. A BTG is a combined arms group of between 600 and 900 men, usually closer to 600. And this group does everything. So you have artillery, you have logistical support, you have some anti-air guys, you have around 200 infantry. And a BTG is the basic unit of the Russian army, which makes sense. It's the smallest unit that can operate truly independently. And it's important to understand this because it explains, to some extent, Russian underperformance. See, Russian military doctrine has really not changed very much at all since the days of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union said that 
since the branches of the military were organizationally separate, each one has to be prepared to meet their own needs. This is very different from NATO doctrine. For example, the Russian Air Force is not typically expected to provide cover for ground troops. The Air Force has their own targets, their own missions, they're heavily centered towards strategic bombing and missile campaigns, and as far as providing air cover, that's not really a priority. The ground troops use their own uh, anti-air batteries. Whereas in NATO, the ground troops would coordinate with the air support because you have an integrated command and control system, so the army guys can focus on ground threats, and if they're being threatened by enemy aircraft, well, they can call in the Air Force or the Navy. So we have this Russian battalion tactical group system, right, a BTG, and it's a jack-of-all-trades. And as the cliche goes, a jack-of-all-trades is a master of none. For example, out of these 600 to 900 men, only 200 of them are infantry. So the Russians constantly have to find ways to augment their infantry. They will either rely on local uh, DPR and LPR militias or conscript infantry brigades to guard their flanks. And on top of that, they have these inaccurate artillery, so they tend to resort to mass shelling. And if you can't reliably hit a target, well, just drop enough shells in the general vicinity and you'll eventually hit it. And this leads to a lot of civilian casualties, but also strain on the supply lines. It is more expensive to make a really accurate artillery shell and artillery system, but once you develop that, it becomes really easy to deploy that system because you don't have to send tens of thousands of artillery shells to take out a few targets. It's just that much easier. And because of all of these drawbacks, the Russians, while they very much are theoretically more capable than the Ukrainians during this period of the war, early summer, they advance very slowly. And while they're doing this, the Ukrainians are able to hold the line in most places and train new troops. This is incredibly important. It can be so tempting for countries in wartime to just draft a bunch of guys or get a bunch of volunteers and get them to the front line, right? We need these guys now. But if you can husband that strength, if you can give your guys good training, they're ultimately going to perform better. And that's what we start seeing uh, around the middle of summer as Ukraine is able to start deploying some of these troops who they've been training. And it also doesn't hurt that they receive several rounds of Western aid during this period to provide much-needed military equipment. Probably the most famous Western system 
at this stage of the war is the American HIMARS system, which first arrives in Ukraine on June 23rd. HIMARS is short for High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, specifically the M142 system, which fires a variety of rockets and loads with ranges of over 50 miles, and it's extremely accurate. As of today, 20 of these systems have been delivered to Ukraine, with 18 more planned to be delivered in the future. And despite Russian claims, there is zero evidence, at least on Oryx, of any losses of these systems. I have not seen any photos. So, the Ukrainians are well supplied with these systems, and now the main issue is the ammunition, which is also expensive. But the HIMARS system changes the game because the Russians have been using all of these artillery shells and they've been storing them in depots relatively close to the front. Now, all of a sudden, Ukraine is able to start hitting these depots. Now, think about that. You can use your expensive guided artillery rocket to take out one Russian artillery piece, or you can use that same rocket to hit a depot with tens of thousands of shells in it and blow them all to smithereens and neutralize a whole bunch of our Russian cannons. And this is what the Ukrainians start to do, and it really bogs down the Russian advance, and in most places they entirely stall. And then on September 4th through 10th, Ukraine surprises everybody by launching a major counteroffensive. Now, this counteroffensive, at least the groundwork for it, is laid during the summer. During summer, the Ukrainians keep saying that they're going to attack Kherson. They're going to attack Kherson. This is a Russian held city in southern Ukraine, right on the west bank of the Dnipro River. It's the only territory Russia holds west of the Dnipro, and it makes sense that the Ukrainians would want to hit them there. It's a logical choice. But instead, after all of this talk and bluster about attacking Kherson, they instead attack near the city of Kharkiv in the northeast of the country, which is still Ukrainian-held. This area has not been a priority for the Russians. They have a lot of their weaker troops there. They're not expecting an attack because their intelligence is not very good. I will defer until the end of the war to learn how the Ukrainians managed to build up a large armored force in this part of the country without the Russians knowing. That's something that's going to be fascinating to learn. I mean, the Russians have satellites. You'd think they would have seen this force building up, but there was a failure somewhere, and the Ukrainians managed to push through a weak spot in the Russian line and take the city of Kupiansk in the north. This is a major Russian rail hub that supplies troops further south 
along the front line. And that area further south is where the Russians have had most of their advances. It's where they've been putting most of their troops. And now all of a sudden, this Ukrainian force has cut off their main line of supply. And then the Ukrainians sweep south from Kupiansk towards those Russian troops. So now not only are the Russians cut off from supply, but they're in danger of being caught in a pincher. So they are forced to pull back, and the Russian line collapses. If you look at the photos of the abandoned Russian positions, look, I've never served in the military, but I've studied enough military stuff that even I can look at those pictures and immediately go, those guys just ran. I mean, we're talking boxes of ammunition, medicinal supplies, weapons, just left. An army that is retreating in good order does not do that. They take their stuff with them when they leave. So the fact that the Russians have left so much stuff behind tells me that this was a rout. These guys were just running. This was survival for them. And as a result of this bit of strategic jujitsu, Ukraine is able to retake uh, 2,300 square miles of territory. That's 6,000 square kilometers for those of you who don't use freedom units. I kid. The Russian Third Army Corps is a good example of the nature and extent of the Russian failure during this time. This Army Corps consists of 40 BTGs, 40 battalion tactical groups, with T-80 and T-90 tanks, which are the best in Russia's arsenal. These are troops that Russia has been raising over the summer, much like Ukraine. They've been trying to kind of train this force and husband them. And this is a volunteer force. These are not conscripts. The units are under strength. Many of the BTGs have less than 400 men instead of the usual minimum of 600, and there's a desperate shortage of officers, so the Russians are still kind of trying to get this force together. And in late August, it is deployed to near the border of eastern Ukraine, still inside Russia, and it's grouping up to go to the Donbass territory, which is where some of the heaviest fighting is, it appears that it's supposed to be like a rear echelon unit, right? The idea is to move these guys up, have them in the rear, give them more training, give them some field in the experience, and then over the ensuing weeks and months, they will be a proper fighting force. But early in September, uh, when the Ukrainian attack comes out of the blue in the northeast, the Russian Third Army Corps is hurriedly sent forward to Kharkiv, and it's done in a sort of piecemeal fashion. One BTG at a time gets sent out uh, with individual orders to go to specific locations. It's fairly disorganized, and even as these troops are arriving at the front, the front is being pushed back by the Ukrainian advance. So these green troops get deployed willy-nilly into the hottest combat uh, 
and almost all of them, as soon as they get there, just turn around and run. And again, there's a whole bunch of equipment left for the Ukrainians. We will learn the official numbers after the war, but it would not surprise me at all if the Russian army was the largest foreign supplier of Ukrainian military supplies. On September 21st, following this Ukrainian advance, Vladimir Putin announces mobilization in Russia. And this is the point where I have to talk a little bit about the quality of the Russian troops, because again, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Some people will say that the Russians have the absolute best infantry in the world. Well, at least they used to say that. You don't hear as many people saying that these days. Um, and other people will point to the absolutely horrendous performance of the conscripts to say, look, the, the Russian army is terrible. Well, in reality, it depends on which Russians you are talking about. Earlier, we discussed the VDV, the Airborne Forces, these guys are the best of the best. You put them in the field, let's say in a friendly exercise against the U.S. Army Rangers, and I would give either side a 50-50 chance of winning. But the VDV are the best of the best in Russia. The bulk of the Russian army consists of forces who are called kontraktniki, which is what it sounds like. They are contractors or volunteers. These forces are much more inconsistent. For one thing, they are organized by region. So you have cultural factors that come into play, and you also have favoritism played towards certain regions, and uh, they don't get the best of the best equipment. They get kind of the second-tier equipment. They use primarily T-80 and T-72 tanks, which were first built in the 1970s, although sometimes they use older T-62 tanks, which were built in the 1960s, at least initially. There are many variants of these tanks. Just to use one example, the T-72B3 model 2016 was produced in 2016, as you might expect, and the Russians have lost 189 of those. But the Russians are also deploying many of the old T-72B variant, which was made all the way back in 1985, and they've lost 216 of those tanks. By the way, it's a Similar situation for the Ukrainian army in terms of their tank and armored equipment. It's all old Soviet gear. Anyway, after the Kontraktniki in the Russian army, you have conscripts. Now, in most times, at least from the beginning of the Russian Federation to this year, the conscripts have been called srochniki. These are 18-year-olds who are doing their mandatory military service. Those troops are at least theoretically exempt from going into combat unless Russia itself is being attacked, although we did see some evidence of srochniki on the battlefield earlier in the war. These guys are mostly used for 
border defense, things like that. They're not the, the primary troops. But in this war, we have a new class of troops, the Mobiki, or mobilized. These are the guys who have been called up in Putin's mass mobilization. And these guys are basically cannon fodder. Their function is to occupy lousy defensive positions and temporarily block the enemy while better forces establish a new defensive line for the winter. Oftentimes when these guys are deployed, there are no officers. They're often armed with pre-World War II Mosin Nagant rifles. Saw a report on Telegram a couple weeks ago of a 600-man battalion being deployed and told to dig trenches for defense, and the entire battalion was issued three shovels. These Mobiki are not only ill-trained if they're trained at all, but they're horribly supplied. On the offense, they are pretty much useless. The Russians have used them in human wave attacks with Chechen blocking troops behind them. Basically, you better go forward and fight the Ukrainians or the Chechens will shoot you while you're trying to retreat. And if you followed the whole Chechen thing in this war, it's a whole story in and of itself. The Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, is exceptionally corrupt and owes his position to Putin, and Putin owes Ramzan Kadyrov for the fact that Chechnya has not had any rebellions lately. But these Chechen troops are basically an ill-disciplined mob. They follow Kadyrov because he gives them loot, and they will gladly shoot any Russians who are running because, truth be told, uh, for the most part, uh, the Chechens and the Russians have not traditionally gotten along. They even put on these silly demonstrations when they're safe behind friendly lines and post their videos to TikTok, and people call them the TikTok Battalion, but... They are essential to the Russian war effort because Russia, like Ukraine, is also complicated. So the Russian winter strategy at this point seems to be to dig in to defend their 2014 holdings and the Crimean land bridge in southeast Ukraine and then attack Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. This is what we've been seeing in the last few weeks. Their focus has been on power stations and primarily degrading civilian morale. Winter is here. You take away people's heat. This will reduce public confidence in their government. At least that's the idea, although... Historically speaking, these kinds of campaigns against the civilian infrastructure have only emboldened populations. And since Ukraine's 
new supplies of armament come almost entirely from the West, there's not much of an argument for degrading Ukrainian war infrastructure because the Ukrainian war infrastructure is not in Ukraine. And we're coming to a point here where the Russians are running out of missiles. As far as I can tell, they seem to have used up 80% or so of their pre-war stock of ground-attack missiles. And at this point, uh, it's well documented, they are repurposing S-300 surface-to-air missiles for attack against ground targets, and that's not cheap. You're talking about a couple of million dollars a pop for those missiles. But the Russians have also begun importing Iranian drones, and these drones are cheap. Uh, for example, the Shahed-186 costs $20,000 a piece, so... For less than the cost of a brand new Toyota, you too can blow up a Ukrainian target. And uh, these things are not just for attack. They're also used for artillery spotting. In fact, that seems to be their primary role since the Russians have so much artillery. You can just fly one of these things around and look for targets. And then when you see one, well, then you can dial in your artillery on it. So whether one of these drones is being used for attack or for spotting, it poses a danger. Well, here's the problem. A Ukrainian anti-air missile is going to run anywhere between $1 and $2 million, depending on exactly what it is. Less if you're talking uh, a man-pad system like a Stinger, but still far more than $20,000. So now there is a cost-benefit equation here. If you are a Ukrainian anti-air commander and you see a drone, it's not guaranteed that you need to fire on that. Because if you fire, you are using a very expensive missile to shoot down a very cheap drone. On the other hand, if that drone keeps flying around, you may become an artillery target. Or maybe some of your guys will. And supplies of anti-air missiles are also limited. Remember, the Ukrainians are still largely using Soviet-era gear. When it runs out, that's it. There's no more. Now, there are some possible solutions to this drone problem. One well-thought-out solution is actually a fairly old one. It's the German Flakpanzer Gepard. This is an old-school anti-air system that is basically a rotary machine gun on a tank chassis. So it uses very cheap ammunition, it can hit targets reliably, but it only has a 3.4-mile range because it's basically using bullets. So you can defend a critical target from a drone with one of these things, but you can't defend your entire front line. You can't defend every power station in the country with a Flakpanzer Gepard. Only 30 of them have been delivered. That's 
basically all the stock Germany had available. This system is no longer in production. In fact, it had been mothballed. And the Germans are scraping together seven more units to be delivered in the spring. But again, that's pretty much going to be it. The assembly line for this system is no longer in existence, so the Ukrainians can really only use it for critical targets. And besides the issue of the Russian missile and drone bombardment, there's also the question of what is the Ukrainian army going to do in the winter. It doesn't seem like the Russians are gearing up for any kind of offensive, although who knows? We will find out. But the ground is going to be frozen any day now. It's been an unseasonably warm fall. Don't kid yourself. It is going to be freezing cold in Ukraine sooner rather than later, and this will permit operations until mid-March. Things have kind of slowed down in the fall, and the reason for that is a phenomenon called the Rasputitsa, which means mud season. In the spring and the fall, both in Russia and Ukraine, the ground basically turns to mud. If you are driving on a dirt road or if you're in a tank formation and you're trying to move a bunch of tanks across a field instead of putting them in a column on a road where they're easy targets, well, it becomes much harder to do during mud season. And even more so than tracked vehicles, the mud becomes a problem for vehicles with tires because they are really limited to the roads only, and that can make resupplying your tracked vehicles much more difficult. And in between now and mid-March, we have this golden window where the ground will be frozen, where you can make large armored assaults. But I would not expect anything as impressive as Ukraine's massive counterattack this fall. And the reason is that Russia has built defensive lines. They're still pushing in some places, still trying to claim ground. It's a fluid situation, but for the most part, Russia seems to have shifted over to the defensive. And the longer they have to entrench and build defenses, the harder they become to attack. There is not going to be, or probably won't be, as weak a spot on the Russian line for the Ukrainians to exploit as they did this fall. Again, it's a fluid situation. I'm dealing with publicly available information. The Ukrainian war planners have a whole lot more information than I do, and I am fully prepared to be made the fool. But for now, I, I would expect smaller advances than previously, but it still looks as if the Ukrainians have the initiative throughout the winter. That's where we're at. But, as I said, I also wanted to talk about where we're going. And this is dangerous. Because history is descriptive. It's not proscriptive. It doesn't tell you what you need to do. It just tells you what happened. And good history is also apolitical. 
That's why I generally adhere to a 20-year rule on this show. If it happened within the last 20 years, I don't talk about it because it's going to be colored by opinion whether I want it to be or not. And you can smell a political historical account a mile away, and they're not good. So, if you're old enough to remember sitting there and reading a physical newspaper, think of this as the editorial section. This show is almost always the news, or at least I try to hold myself to a standard of factual accuracy, but that's impossible to do when you're talking about the future. And history, as a form of divination, is unreliable. I may as well be sitting here with a magic eight ball and a deck of tarot cards. So, instead of blathering on with predictions that will no doubt look hilarious six months from now, Instead, let me issue some warnings. First, be careful what you believe. I'm talking about propaganda, and I'm not talking strictly about Russian propaganda. Both sides do it. You may remember the ghost of Kiev, the Ukrainian fighter pilot who supposedly single-handedly shot down a bunch of Russians during the opening phase of the war. Turns out that person never existed, but the Russian propaganda is far worse. Now, not everything is propaganda. We need to think critically. Thinking critically also means doing research, and there are a lot of claims that are easily debunked. Take, for example, the Russian claim that the United States and Ukraine are jointly operating a bioweapons lab in Ukraine. Even read suggestions that this lab was developing a special strain of influenza that would specifically target slobs, which, I mean, seems pretty ridiculous because Ukrainians are also slobs, and so are the U.S. allies in Poland, so it would be kind of ridiculous for the Ukrainians, of all people, to be going in on a uh, <laughs> targeted virus, but... The more credible claims simply say that this was a bioweapons lab, and even that is easily debunked. Right, now I'm talking specifically about the Mechnikov Anti-Plague Scientific Institute in Odessa. Well, this lab was not built by the U.S. and Ukraine. It was built by the Soviets. It was built not to develop bioweapons, but to study animal diseases with the potential for crossover to human populations, as well as other diseases which are a threat in the region, such as cholera and anthrax. 
Now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, these labs were severely underfunded. You can find news stories from the early 2000s with people fretting about safety. In one case, the Mechnikov lab was researching on anthrax or plague or some major disease, and they were doing it in an open room with windows open to the streets of Odessa, which is a major city. So, yes, there has been some Western funding since then to increase safety and not have a major disease breakout. This is not a bioweapons lab, and a five-minute Google search could completely dispel that notion from anybody's head. I can't spend the rest of this episode debunking every propaganda claim by both sides that would literally take hours upon hours, but think critically. The second warning is that I fear we may be repeating some of the uglier aspects of previous wars. And by this I mean a growing Western hatred, not of the Russian regime and army, but of Russians writ large. I see things like people calling the troops orcs, or saying that, Russian citizens should be completely banned from Western countries, even if they're seeking asylum because they're subject to the draft. People will say, well, why don't they go back there and have a revolution? I spend a lot of time on social media, and I see sentiments like this from people who are otherwise progressive folks, people who would never think of discriminating against someone based on their nationality or ethnicity, but for some reason this seems to be acceptable in certain circles when it comes to Russians. Now, this is a complicated issue because for the soldier on the ground, there is a certain level of necessary hatred towards the enemy. If you're going to kill someone, you're going to have to justify it to yourself in some way. That's human. Take this sentiment as expressed by American Navy SEAL Chris Kyle in his book American Sniper. Quote, I only wish I had killed more. Not for bragging rights, but because I believe the world is a better place without savages out there taking American lives. Everyone I shot in Iraq was trying to harm Americans or Iraqis loyal to the new government. I had a job to do as a SEAL. I killed the enemy. An enemy I saw day in and day out plotting to kill my fellow Americans. I'm haunted by the enemy's successes. They were few, but... Even a single American life lost is one too many. End quote. I don't know how I feel about that. It may simply be a mindset that is an ugly necessity in the environment of the battlefield. 
and I can't judge Chris Kyle for his sentiments, but I can quote from another person who saw combat. Person who saw combat, the likes of which we aren't even seeing today in Ukraine. And I can give you his thoughts, at least in a roundabout way, because he didn't write nonfiction. The man I'm talking about is J.R.R. Tolkien. For those of you who are not Tolkien and Lord of the Rings fanatics like I am, Tolkien grew up right before World War I, and at the beginning of the war he shipped off with some friends to go and fight. And at this time in Britain, the military units were highly localized, so he ends up serving with a bunch of his friends, which is one of the things the British actually do to try and sell military service. Hey, look, you can serve with all your buddies from home, but Tolkien and his friends end up in the Battle of the Somme, one of the worst battles in military history. In the first day alone, the British would lose nearly 20,000 men. And by the end of the fight, all of Tolkien's childhood friends would be dead and he would be alone in the trenches. He would go on to become a successful author and he would invent orcs. And in The Lord of the Rings... One of the heroes, Sam, sees a dead enemy soldier fall by his feet, and he says, or thinks, quote, He was glad that he could not see the dead face. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart, or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would rather have stayed there in peace. End quote. There will be peace someday, and at that point, we're going to have to find a way to get along. And for people at home who are not on the battlefield to extend hatred towards all Russian people is counterproductive, and it poses a risk. One of the most shameful events in my country's history is the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And that internment was based on the same logic. Third warning that I have drawn from history is that at the end of the day, there has to be a willingness to compromise. Can Ukraine liberate most of its territory? It remains to be seen, but it's possible, even next year, that Ukraine could push the Russians back to the border in most areas. See, Crimea is a tougher nut to crack. The only way to access it is via the Isthmus of Perikop in the west. This is a narrow stretch of land that measures from 3.1 to 4.3 miles wide, 
and this little gooseneck has been occupied and heavily fortified by the Russians since 2014. Back in World War II, it took German General Erich von Manstein five days and thousands of lives to cross this stretch of land, and he had the Wehrmacht to deal with. The only other access to Crimea is via the Arabat split in the west. This is a very narrow stretch of land that's less than a thousand feet across at some points, and invading across that is a non-starter. Ukraine could bombard Crimea. If they get close enough, they even have artillery systems that can hit the bridge connecting Crimea's eastern coast to the Russian mainland. And essentially, they could put the whole peninsula under siege and eventually force a Russian withdrawal or surrender, but that would be incredibly costly and incredibly time-consuming, and it would leave them open to attacks by the Russians from other areas. And let's not kid ourselves, Crimea is the most strategically important asset that Putin has taken from the Ukrainians. If he's going to try hard to hold on to anything, it's going to be that. And Crimea basically becomes a battle of will in that case. So be prepared for Zelensky to possibly give away Crimea in a peace deal. Putin is not going to willingly walk away with nothing, and keep in mind that for him, failure doesn't just mean embarrassment, it means that he will almost certainly die under mysterious circumstances not long afterwards, so for him, this is a personal matter of life and death. And, besides giving Putin an off-ramp, this would still actually improve Ukraine's position when compared to where they stood at the end of 2014. Now, provided there are no reverses on the battlefield, which could happen, this is for the Ukrainians to decide. But don't be shocked if they don't retake all their territory, although the other argument is that if you let the Russians keep Crimea, well, they'll just rearm and then come back for more next time. So, remains to be seen how that will shake out. The fourth and final danger I see here is the sense of triumphalism in the West. Right? As if the failure of Russia is a foregone conclusion. Now, that's dangerous because it may reduce support to Ukraine. Why spend more to support them if this is all a foregone conclusion? But more to the point, I see people calling for things or wishing for things that maybe we should think twice about. Take the overthrow of Vladimir Putin, for example. Well, that sounds like a nice idea. But Russia isn't just Vladimir Putin. It's an oligarchic system, and he's created this cadre of people around himself that rely on that system. So when he dies, the people closest to the levers of power will have an incentive to replace Putin with a Putin clone. Whoever it is, you can 
be sure it will not be Alexei Navalny. Might even be someone worse than Putin. Another thing I see people talk about is a breakup of Russia. This makes sense to some extent. You had the breakup of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union not too long ago. If there's some sort of division in senior leadership following Putin's death or ouster or just a loss in Ukraine, do you have civil conflict break out? What are the drivers? What are the dividing lines? Well, as unlikely as I think this is, there is the possibility that some ethnic areas could break away. Chechnya is the most obvious. Chechnya tried to break away before and is only not trying to break away because their current leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, is buddy-buddy with Putin. If Putin goes away and Kadyrov does not have a good relationship with the next Russian leader, you could see Chechnya try to separate very quickly. There are other ethnic areas. For example, the region of Tartarstan is a Turkic region, majority Turkic. They speak a Turkic language, and they even instituted a Turkic Latin alphabet in 2001, as opposed to Cyrillic. So there are some cultural divisions brewing in that area. And all of these areas outside of European Russia, all of those areas are key to the Russian military. The bulk of the Russian population lives around Moscow. The bulk of the military comes from outside that area. So, for example, Sergei Shoigu, the current defense ministry, is from near the Mongolian border. So you have a lot of key military leaders who are part of these ethnic minorities and who are from these farther-flung regions. Now, going further east than the Turkish areas, it might sound really easy for Siberia to go separatist, but actually those areas are so sparsely populated by indigenous populations that they're actually Russian majority, uh, ethnic Russian majority in those areas. But Assume Putin falls and the military and security complex splinters. Surely this is a win for the West, right? Well, not necessarily. When empires break up, that has repercussions. The Entente powers at the end of World War I decided to break up the Ottoman Empire. That led to a whole century of conflict in the Middle East. Or how about breaking up the German and Austrian empires? Whoops, we got Hitler out of that one. The fall of the Russian Empire might have seemed great until we got the Soviet Union, and, well, after the Roman Empire came the so-called Dark Ages. In other words... Just because what exists now is not ideal doesn't mean things can't get a lot worse. But let's play with this scenario. Russia splinters. European Russia remains a rump pariah state. Tartarstan becomes independent and 
leagues up with the Central Asian states, like Kazakhstan and some kind of economic union. So does Chechnya, which becomes independent. Manchuria, completely rudderless, becomes Chinese. There's already a large Chinese population in the mining and natural gas industries there, so let's say the Chinese government dispatches troops to defend Chinese citizens living in the area who are in danger due to the widespread civic unrest in Russia, and China just kind of keeps that area. So now we have this independent Siberia north of that, very sparsely populated. It's not safe from the Chinese at all risks becoming a puppet, so does it try to join NATO? Does it try to become the 51st U.S. state? Do you have NATO on the border of China? Well, that's dangerous. That's even less stable than what we have now. So, while you sit there munching your popcorn and watching things progress... Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Hello again. It's me, Dan. This is a friendly reminder that if you're only listening to the audio podcast, you're not getting all of my content. I also have a Patreon channel called Dan's War College. Each month, I break down a historical battle, weapon, or tactic and explain how it works. This is a video series with maps, graphics, and other helpful visual aids, and you can get it all for just $5 a month. We've done 10 episodes so far, and some of these have even been patron requests, because I do take requests. You can find the link to the Patreon channel in the episode description. And if you're on the fence, episode 5 of Dan's War College is currently publicly available, so you can check that one out and get a taste for what the channel is like. Of course... Not everybody wants to spend $5 a month for a monthly video, and who can blame you? There are so many channels and subscription services out there that it's just impossible to sign up for all of them. But if you still want to support the show, you can share it with your friends or post a link on social media. Shows like this grow by word of mouth, and if the channel's growth is any indication, you guys are great advertisers. Thanks so much, and please keep it up, and if your podcast service lets you leave a review, please do so. If you want to follow Relevant History on social media, you can find links in the description for that as well. Or just go to Twitter and find at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, Podcast. If you want to send me an email you can write to dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked, or if you think I got something wrong, tell me that too.
You can also visit the show's website at dantollerpodcast.com. Once again, that's dantollerpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.